So yes, I'm here because uh, the baby came. So I do have a, something to, that, uh, to talk about, but first I wanted to a- see if anyone had any questions about um, meditation practice or Dharma questions. So it was interesting to me that, um, see this is Sunday, so Friday when uh, the baby was born, that's also the day that Paul Wellstone was killed. So I was thinking about the joys and the sorrows of life. Both kind of happened that day, right? This new baby, things went well. It's really quite beautiful. I personally found it very upsetting about Paul Wellstone, extremely upsetting. For a lot of different reasons. And somehow, thinking of joys and sorrows, uh, I'm not a baseball fan, but a lot of people I know are really, really into the World Series. And I imagine in, you know, a group this large, there'll be probably a fair number of us who are really into it. Um, So I was with some folks, and I've been around people watching the games. You know, and last night was this... Uh, most of you, many of you will know, but some won't, that um, it's this, if the Giants won last night, they'd win the World Series. I think it's the first time since, whatever, the 50s um, that they would have won the series, first time since they've been in San Francisco. And it was like, I don't know, the seventh inning, and they were up five to nothing. They were going to win, right? And then the Anaheim Angels came back, and it was just devastating for the Giants fans. But it was fantastic for the Angels fans. Right? It was the same event, actually. It just depends on your perspective. So here we are in this what we call this, this, this state, this human condition. And we don't have to look very far. You don't need somebody sitting up giving a Dharma talk to talk about the joys and sorrows of life. We all know it very well. Um, sometimes the Buddha is quoted as saying that life is suffering. And that's, in, that's inaccurate um, translation, it's not quite accurate. But when people, if that's what people think the Buddha said, then they tend to view Buddhism as being pessimistic. But I would say the Buddha was not, he was neither pessimistic uh, nor optimistic. He would consider himself a realist. So he fully acknowledged both the happiness and the sadness, both the joys and the sorrows of life. All he was asking us to do was to face the situation head on, just to look clearly at at our lives and the fact that we all have the joys and sorrows. Some of us have more of one than the other. 
And so the question that we're being asked is, in the midst of our lives, what are we to do? Can we find a way to navigate through so we're not just lost at the effect of it? So we're not, you know, when the, when the giants win, we're happy and life's great. When they lose, we're crushed. It's not, it's even more than that. It's not saying we won't feel the happiness and the sadness. That's not it at all. Of course we're going to feel all of life. As a matter of fact, as I'm sure many, many of you know, see, they don't tell you this when you start the meditation practice. But as we start to wake up a little more, we start to experience life more fully, right? That sounds nice. That's the way they say it to kind of hook you in. (laughs) That sounds good. And that's true. But think, what does that really mean? It means we're going to experience everything more. I remember once years ago, I was at some retreat, and I had kind of opened into a new experience or a new level or something kind of I was ecstatic I went running into the teacher you know I had this experience and he he just looked at me he said well I wouldn't uh, get make too big of a deal about it both the pleasant and the unpleasant just keep getting stronger and I thought you know but it's true because think about what we do in meditation practice we're setting aside a special time in life to, to a certain degree, set aside all of our concerns and all of the just things we're busy with and to quiet down and using our, this quietness that we develop or this concentration that we develop to go deep within ourselves. So what do we expect is going to happen? We're going to start to see what's there, Right? Maybe things we'd never seen before. Maybe things we didn't want to see. Maybe things we didn't want to know were in there. We start to wake up to all the parts of our being. And the idea then is... um, can we allow ourselves to be who and what we are? Can we let just the full uh, expression of our being manifest itself? How much of our lives do we spend trying to be someone or something that either we think we should or that life or society says we should? Or maybe, I don't know, maybe our conditioning that we don't, maybe we're not even aware of it, or we don't, we're un, either unaware or unable or unwilling to make, make a shift somewhere for whatever reason. It's going to vary for all of us. As we start to come to this more awakening, 
It's not that we're trying to create some meditative state that we're going to go off into where everything is light and bliss and happiness and there's no sorrow. I don't think that's what the Buddha was uh, pointing towards. I think he was pointing towards can we find a way of being in the midst of our lives as they are with poise, clarity, wakefulness, freedom instead of at the effect of So that sounds easy to say when we're in the joys, right? For myself, I know when I'm in the joys, then sure, you know, I'm not clinging and life is, you know, I'm open and I feel connected with life and my heart is open. What about the times when, whatever, sadness, loneliness, despair, fear, Pain. Oh, maybe it's not so easy, right? Maybe it's not so easy in those times. So I think it's important as we start to um, acknowledge that, you know, sometimes it is hard and it's too much. No, I can't be with this or I don't want to be with this. I don't want to feel this. Not that we're supposed to feel it or that we should feel it. Oh, you know, we read in some sutra of the Buddha that we're supposed to be mindful and not clinging and be free. There's, you know, it's letting go of that supposed to. There's no supposed to. When it's too much for us to deal with, don't worry about it. It's just too much. Right? There's nothing you can do about it anyway. Right? That's when we need a lot of, that's when the compassion part comes in. That's the part that acknowledges, yeah, you know, I can't be present with this. I don't want to feel this. It's either... I can't do it any longer, it's too much, or it's too intense. And then we just need a lot of compassion. And I, I don't know what we do then. I guess we just hang in there the best we can in those times. I think one of the ideas of practice, you know, we use this word practice. And it's not just meditation practice. You know, when we talk about Dharma practice, Part of that is some kind of practice, I hope for, well, you're all here meditating, so for all of us here, some kind of uh, practice to be able to gain some amount of calmness, to quiet our minds down, and some kind of wakefulness, some mindfulness. But also, of course, Dharma practice includes the sila part, the morality part, learning to live our lives in ways that are uh, not harmful for ourselves or for others. the compassion part, all of this 
practice of Dharma is for we don't start with when it's too much. We start with something quite simple. Find a place to sit or lie down or stand to be as comfortable as your body will allow you to be, whatever that is. Maybe we're lying down or sitting in a chair or in a cushion or standing or walking. We try to find a place where we can um, let go of external distractions as much as we can. Some of us might practice with our eyes open, but I think probably many of us here might practice with our eyes closed or even shutting out even some more. And then just to do this very, very simple practice of bringing our awareness. I happen to work with the breath a lot. Some of you might not. There are many, many styles of Vipassana practice. Probably in the traditions where we teach, we focused on just a few of those different styles and possibilities. But we use some some style of practice, some form, to start to allow the mind to connect in, to gain some kind of, we say, concentration, some calmness. We start to train the mind. Just real simple, just like that. Notice how hard even that simple practice is. If we say, sit down, close your eyes, connect with the breath, and keep your attention on the breathing. Well, you can't do it. I mean, you can do it for a little bit while, maybe one breath or two or three, and then you're gone. We can't even do that. So we have to start very simple. And slowly our ability to stay present and free in the midst of experience expands out. And slowly, naturally, through the Dharma practice, we are able to um, maintain that poise in the midst of that circle's widened. We can be there, present with a little more. If it's painful or difficult, or if it's quite pleasant, we still experience it. We're still there. We're fully engaged in the process. We're not uh, disconnected from it. But we're present. We're not jerked around by it. And slowly that can expand out, expand expand out. And any time it goes past our edge, whatever that is, then we're lost. That's all then we're just lost. It's okay. Last night I got into an argument, kind of a little tiff, I'll call it, with my partner. We've been together for about eight years, and she said something, and it triggered something off in me, and I said something back to her, and it kind of escalated up, and we got into a fight. About nothing. Nothing. (laughs) And then... You know, we're lying there going to sleep. She's on the bed, and I'm kind of lying here like this with my arms crossed, with my attitude. And she was over there with her attitude. And then finally I went, oh, gee, you know, I don't even know what this was about. And then one of us said, gee, you know, I'm sorry we fought about. I mean, if we're going to fight, let it be something that we care about even. 
And then we said, oh, gee, sorry. So it wasn't a big deal. We just got caught. Something triggered something, and we went past that edge where we could, were able to stay mindful and awake and clear. And so in that moment, I wasn't, I wasn't in a space where I could see, oh, I said something, she said something, oh, anger's arising, uh, reaction is arising. No, I was in it, I was identified in it, I was caught in it. Now, it wasn't, fortunately, it wasn't a big problem, but it's just an example of, it just went over past my point of ability to stay mindful. Now, in my case, then I added on a second level of suffering, which was my judging about myself and my criticizing about myself, of, oh, and feeling bad about that I had done that. It's an extra level of, uh, I use the word suffering. One of my favorite uh, suttas, um, Discourse of the Buddha, that I've been quoting a lot this last year because it's just been so useful for me. So I've said it here probably a number of times in this center. Um, but it's so important, I think, you probably can't say it too much, and it is the um, uh, sutra on the what's called the two darts. And that's the one in which someone asks the Buddha, what is the difference between an ordinary person and an enlightened person? And the Buddha said, well, both the ordinary and the enlightened person experience all of life, the joys and the sorrows. They both experience, you know, pain, difficulty. It's like being shot with a dart. But the ordinary person makes a big problem about it, gets into aversion about it or clinging. It's a whole second level of difficulty, so it's like getting shot with a second dart. The enlightened person, they only get shot with the dart once. In other words, they haven't achieved some state in which they're completely disassociated from life in this bliss realm of, of light, right? There can, by the way, there can be experiences like that. Can, they can happen in meditation. Unfortunately, they don't last, but that's just the way it is. Right? So we don't want to make too big a deal about that. But the enlightened person, the awake person, if you will, has found that way to remain fully present and clear and awake, but not lost in the effect of all of these experiences. So when the first dart hits, what are we going to do? Are we going to run away? Are we going to push away? No, no, not this. Or can we find a way to be present with it? Fully experiencing it. Right? Fully awake to the, um, to the experience of our lives. Fully awake to who and what we are. That's all. So to me, the whole path of practice then is just um, um, uh, coming to subtler and subtler realizations of where we get caught and identified and where we're clinging. That's all.
everyone here has had uh, experiences of freedom. We've all had experiences where the heart and mind were quite open and free. We were really at peace, maybe. We, we might not notice these when they happen because they might not be extraordinary. We're not caught in a lot of grasping and clinging. We're not in a lot of aversion. We're just in the flow of life. We've all experienced that. Even in just the most ordinary moments. So why do we need to practice then? What happens in those moments to take them out of it? Something, some experience arises externally, in the mind, in the body, internally, whatever, where all our conditioning comes together and we're hooked back in. And all of a sudden we're in that dualistic relationship with experience. Here's me, there's that experience, and I either really want more of it to hold on or I don't want this and I'm pushing it away. So all the practice is doing is finding the subtler and subtler ways in which we get hooked. And as many of you know, and for those of you who are newer to practice, um, just encourage you to continue that that you can find out that through practice, um, I think just... um, Just naturally, without making a big effort about it, we just find ourselves more awake, our natural state. We're not having to work so hard to stay mindful. We'll still have our times when we get caught. No question about that. But even then, when we're caught, we can just be caught. You know, it sounds so simple when um, when we talk about Dharma teaching, when we try to um, make a concise, simple statement that summarizes the whole teaching. And, of course, when the Buddha did that, he said, well, the, the teachings all summarized as uh, well, we shouldn't cling to anything. We shouldn't cling to anything externally. We shouldn't cling to anything any fixed ideas of who and what we are. That sounds kind of, yeah, I mean, it sounds pretty nice, but, you know, what's the big deal about that? That's different than a lot of religions that are talking about God and metaphysics and a lot of these grand philosophical ideas. And in, in the Buddhist teaching, it really came down to this very pragmatic view. It turns out everything's contained in that teaching. You can pull out um, um, all the teachings on emptiness and impermanence and the nature of reality is all contained in that little statement. But as a path of practice, it's just a path of uh, nothing to be clung to. 
Some of you may have read Joseph Goldstein's new book, One Dharma, came out just a few months ago. Uh, and Joseph uh, had practiced for many years in uh, Theravada Buddhism and Vipassana practice. And then I think for at least 10 years, he's been doing a lot of serious Vajrayana practice. And I asked him last year um, if he considered himself a Theravada Buddhist, you know, Vajrayana practitioner, a Vipassana practitioner, Mahayana, you know, what, or all of those, none of those. And I loved his answer. He, he said he belonged to the school of don't cling. and really saw everything just in service of that. It's all skillful means. And I thought that was so beautiful because it takes us out of um, we don't have to get stuck in any view of opinion about what's right or wrong or we can just use it any and all things that as uh, skillful means. So if we approach our practice in life in this way, you may or may not be, but if you you are taking on this practice of liberation through non-clinging, And we start to see everything as, as just part of the path and skillful means. Our relationship with the joys and the sorrows can start to change. Rather than seeing suffering as a problem, because right? none of us want to suffer, right? That's one thing I know for sure, even though I only know a few people here today. It's the old cliche that's said many times, right? All beings want to be happy. No beings want to suffer. Or another way to say it is um, none of us want to get more of what we don't want in life, right? None of us want to have less of what we want. We all want more of what we want and less of what we don't want, right? I mean, it sounds silly, but I'm just trying to make a point. That's just human nature. So when we're suffering, our first reaction tends to be to contract, tighten up, not this. And then we have all our strategies to make it go away, whatever that is. We can make just a little shift and it changes everything. If we can be awake enough to be present, and that's the key, we have to be awake enough Suffering's not a problem. It's an opportunity. It's showing us where we're clinging. That's all. Anytime there's suffering, there's some kind of clinging. I'm separating out suffering and pain. They're not the same thing. Is everyone clear about that? The pain and suffering are not the same? You're not, you're not clear about that? I'm sorry. Anybody? You're not clear? Are clear. Not clear. Yeah. Um, well, you know, pain is pain. Right? So we know that. 
What we mean when we're talking about suffering is um, if we didn't think it was supposed to be any other way, it wouldn't be a problem, right? It's like the two darts. There's the pain, which is unpleasant. No doubt about that. It's unpleasant. So you could, in a way, say that that's a level of suffering, if you wanted to say it that way. But then there's this other level of suffering where we make a problem about it. We're not able to be present with it. People who've done much meditation practice, and you know, definitely maybe people who, who, who haven't done that much, know that um, you can come into uh, beautiful states in the practice in which you're able to sit quite openly and freely with no problem. And you might have excruciating knee pain, for example, it can be, or your back. And you're able to be fully present and clear and awake and just be with it. The pain is there, but that level of suffering because we can be present with the experience. That's all we mean. So suffering, uh, if we're just looking at it as all as what is it telling us right now? It's pointing to where there's clinging. It doesn't mean we're going to be able to let go. But at least we have the possibility of letting go. So we can shift our whole relationship. People often think... Uh, when difficulties arise in meditation practice, that something's going wrong. You know, we'll be sitting and we judge our practice when um, if the quality of the experience is uh, maybe there's a sense of expandedness, openness, oneness, bliss, peace. We would call that a good meditation. Probably most of us. And if we're sitting in pain, if the mind won't quiet down, we're agitated or we're sleepy or just some, we would say, oh, I'm having a bad meditation. It's not good, right? We judge the, the experience. And so when we have a good meditation, when it's pleasant, you know, the bell will ring and, oh, I hope the bell won't ring for, you know, I just want to get a few more minutes of this because we want more. We never say, Oh, my back is killing me. Oh, my knee is about to fall off. I think I'll sit another few minutes to be with this. We don't do it. Right? We are so conditioned in get rid of the unpleasant, get the pleasant. That's actually not a bad, that's fine to, to do that. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just that then um, if, if our happiness is tied up in that, then we have a problem when we don't get what we want or we are getting the unpleasant. That's all. We just have to know that if our happiness is connected to the causes and conditions, then when we get the causes and conditions are right, we'll be happy, and when they're not, we will be unhappy. That's, that's all. I think the freedom the Buddha was talking about uh, was that a different type of happiness that's not dependent on having any particular kind of experience. It was a happiness of uh, through the ups and downs or the joys and the sorrows, 
that it's that uh, moment people say inner happiness in meditation. It's just that freedom, that sense of freedom in the midst of whatever experience we have. So now let me ask if anyone has either any comments or it could be some questions. Um, I like what you said. Um, One thought that occurred to me was, do you think that over time with, with practice as you incline your heart and mind towards more skill, more wholesome states, that the conditions change so that less sorrowful things tend to, to arise and more joyful things tend to arise. Yeah. Um, I think so, it, it, to a certain extent, no question about it. Uh, and that would be the area, uh, uh, an important topic in, um, important uh, Dharma topic is around the, the idea of, of conditioning. And when we talk about the conditioning, it's really the way to think of it is just the habit, the habit of the mind. So a perfect example is, So if we happen to be a very, say, hot-tempered kind of person, that's the habit of our mind. So when those triggers come that set us off, we're very easily thrown into that anger or aversion or reaction. If we wanted to change that, like any habit, probably in the beginning we would tend to still get caught a lot and often. We would, we, and then later we'd wake up. It's just like when I had my argument last night. Later I wake up and say, oh, gee, I got caught again. And we would probably do that for a while. And maybe over time, as the habit, as we recondition the mind and the habit changes, um, we would tend to not get caught as much, right? We can change habits. We all know that. But it can be hard in the beginning, and then over time it can get easier. And so then that's an example of then we would tend to not experience so much anger and aversion as easily because we've maybe reconditioned ourselves some. And so that's an important concept in Buddhism that's talked about. So in the areas of being able to change our conditioning, uh, there's really no limits on what's possible. I don't know that, you know, from my own experience that there's no limits. Um, I'm just taking that on faith. But I certainly know that within to a certain degree, it is possible to change conditioning. And we probably have all experienced that in some areas of our lives. So in that way, um, in our reactions, the way we uh, deal with uh, experiences can change. The experiences themselves, I don't know. The traditional Buddhist teaching is is that it's karmically determined both uh, what comes to us and the conditioning of our mind. And we can change the conditioning, which of course does have some effect then on our external situation. Obviously, if we're more open and free and loving, we're going to trigger people around us less. And probably there'll be more what we might call positive experiences, good or pleasant experiences coming towards us, if I can use those adjectives. That's a big topic about um, uh, conditionality. Yes. I just have a comment about um, the question and also your answer. Um, don't 
Don't you think the other thing that happens is that um, greater pleasure starts uh, occurring um, surrounding things that previously may have gone unnoticed or not been, been pleasant for us, like um, little small things. And then the other thing I think that happens over time is that there's just greater enjoyment in one's own life, even though you may have judged it before as being my little small insignificant life, it suddenly, or over time, really becomes my life, and it and it has great um, great value for pleasure. Yeah, I yeah. <laughs> and I think uh, I'm sure many many of us um, know that from our own experience. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering about um, the situations with, uh, inside of someone when your emotions are tied to an extremely happy situation and a sad situation, but they're tied to each other with the same event. Brings about both feelings within a person. Yeah. What 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 about that? I don't know that the mindset would be this. You're not experiencing extreme joy or extreme yeah. sadness. You're having both going on at the same yeah. time. So that would be its own thing. That would yeah. So I'm not sure if um, you're just making a comment or I'm not sure what to. Well, what about that? Um, realizes that it's. It's not, a, it's not as simple as just being with it. Yeah, um, so I'm not sure what to say about that necessarily, but... Um, so, so first of all, of course, there's a huge range of experiences that we can have, a huge range of, mi- of states of the mind, states of the heart, you know, what we would call external experiences that come. It's just it's, it's huge. And it's subtle, and there's many gradations, and they get mixed together a lot. And even in the Buddhist um, Abhidharma teachings, um, you know, they, they talk about how in any single mind moment, can, they get colored by many of these different states that can be arising together in different combinations. Yeah. And, you know, actually, I've had times where um, it hasn't been clear to me what, you know, if I really wanted to identify the feelings, say, it wouldn't necessarily be clear what that would be. So I, all I can say is, is that um, you know sometimes it's not easy to be with it, and um, it's not. I mean, look, if we're not able to be with our, if we're it, in a moment, experience is what it is. Despite our best efforts to create our lives to be how we want them to be, which we aren't going to stop doing, and we shouldn't stop doing. I'm not saying that at all. So we're trying and we're making our lives and using all our strategies to live and be okay in the world. And then we get what we get. When you're getting what you get, if we can't be present with it, we suffer. If we can be present with it, we don't suffer. And it's not a judgment. It's not saying we should or like, well, you see, you can't be present with it. There you go. But it's just acknowledging that 
that is just the way it's going to be. And so sometimes um, we can't be with it, and we are going to suffer. I use the word suffering, you know, for a wide range. Of, you know. If I can take a crack at answering that question, if there's joy and there's suffering, and they're seemingly coexisting, if you put numbers on a scale and say one is a plus five and the other is a minus five, you don't end up with zero. Um, they're both there. And you may be a shuttlecock going back and forth so fast you don't quite see them and knowing what's going on. But it really becomes an interesting state to look at, look at and not allow them to uh, cancel each other out. I had a recent experience where they uh, they did. I, I worked in a little research institute, which has been kind of like a little sheltered community, and they <clears throat> they're trying to turn it into a biotech, and they did a series of layoffs in the organization, and it was very painful experience for everyone um, who was involved. Um, you know, seeing their, some of their colleagues being escorted out of the building. I think in some ways it felt like a violation, but um, there were some things that happened that affected me, but I was very, felt, had this very strong reaction and was very distraught. And I think I, I couldn't sleep well that night, and I stayed awake for about four hours, uh, driving my husband crazy. <laughs> but I just sat there and looked out the window in the dark. And it it seems to me that from from the way you what, what you're describing is it was it's it's too much in, in a way it was too much to be with, but on the other hand, all I really just sat there and looked out the window. So there's an element of maybe sitting with the pain. And and it wasn't like I mean I, of course my mind was going, but that wasn't what it was all about. It's more just kind of... Well, it sounds like you were being present in that moment. You couldn't sleep. You had all... Because so, one thing we want to be clear about is if, if there are difficulties arising and then we're in a clear, awake space to be present with it, it doesn't turn that into some pleasant experience. No, it wasn't. It, was, it, was, it wasn't... Uh, and then sometimes I would start crying. It was just yeah. sad. You know, yeah. and I just sat there... Yeah looked at the trees in the dark out the window. Uh, You know, it felt in a lot of ways just very probably healing. Because the next day I was able to go into back in there and be productive. Instead of, it didn't feel like I was carrying that heavy weight that I'd taken home. But it doesn't feel that because what I was, from your description to being I mean, there's two ways one could see being present. One would be just sitting there with it, maybe like how I did. Another would be to have some kind of separation from it. Right. right. I, the way I'm talking, and you, you can do either way, and they, sometimes we, we might need a separation. I'm not trying to make any judgment about what each of us chooses to do, but that's a, an important distinction. Um, the way I talk about mindfulness is, and the way we, the way we use language, sometimes it can have a sense of kind of, disconnect, like it's there, I see it, but it's sitting over here and I've gotten some space. We may need to do that sometimes. 
That may be exactly what's called for. But actually, at some point, what mindfulness practice is more about actually going the opposite, really connecting, really in the experience. So there's less separation from the experience. So that's the idea of kind of, I think, what you were, the way I take what you're talking about is really experiencing our lives more richly and deeply and more awake. Experiencing the experience more, more connected with it and finding a way to uh, not be lost in it. That's the balance, kind of. Yeah, I guess I can't say now, I mean, I don't know how lost I was in right. per se right now looking back at it. But. It's something we all play with. Just, and sometimes we'll be more lost, sometimes we'll be more, sometimes we'll be a little pulled away, sometimes we'll be, it's just a... Yeah. So let me just say this, uh, just one moment. Um, <coughs> You know, people were raising their hands, but I noticed that um, we're a little bit past the official ending time. Um, and I know all that food is out there, too. <laughs> um, so I'm thinking um, we should probably end. Although, is that right? People are nodding. I mean, people raising their hands. Um, the, children, the, children are the, the children are going to come in. So I hope there wasn't anything burning or... <laughs> You know, I'd, I'd lost track of the time, so I'm sorry. I just wasn't managing it very well. Okay. Um, can we just do this to end? Um, take a minute, because I like to end with a little loving kindness practice, a little metta practice. And there's, of course, many ways to do this practice. Um, I would, in, you know, do whatever practice you like. Um, I would invite you to, you know. Get your body as comfortable as, as it can be, whatever that is. To let your awareness, to connect in with your experience right now, whatever that is. Experience in the body, in the heart and the mind. And to see if you can allow that to just express itself without having to do anything, without having to change it or push it away. This is a radical path of self-acceptance that the Buddha taught. So just as we find ourselves in this moment, it actually is a great act of kindness. It's a great act of metta to just allow ourselves even to just be. And if you find that it's difficult to allow yourself to be, then send some metta for that. And some compassion for that. And you could in your own practice um, just continue with metta this self, this uh, connecting with your experience with mindful awareness and then sending this metta, this self-acceptance and this kindness, that could be your whole practice, your whole metta practice. But for now, um, then let's shift our awareness and, and just expand it outwards um, to all the people here in the room and sending this metta, this loving kindness out also beyond and into the community and into the world. And wishing 
Um, just as I wish to be happy, may all beings everywhere be happy. Just as I wish to be free from suffering, may all beings everywhere be free. And then finally to end with this prayer from the Metta Sutta, which is the Buddha's discourse on loving kindness. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Thank you all very much.